Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we're going to talk about, unfortunately, a very relevant topic, and that is dealing with difficult people. Do we need to be a schmat and constantly give in, or can we stick up for our rights, stick up for what we believe is correct? We're going to talk about a number of aspects as it relates to this topic, strategies and tactics for dealing with difficult people. Can you reciprocate negativity? What if the difficult person is your boss? Your Rav, your Rosh Hashiva, your spouse, how do you handle those situations? When are you allowed or are you allowed to ever hate that individual? What if the individual earned that hatred? And we'll also talk about dealing with elderly. Do they get crankier when they get older? And how can somebody self-diagnose to see if they are a difficult person and the subject of this show? We have a number of experts in these areas and numerous other areas joining us today. We're going to start out with the great Posek, the Go. Rav Yitzchak Berkowitz, who is the Rosh Yeshiva of Eishat Torah. He is an expert in the halachas of Ben Adam Chaveiro. We're going to speak with Dr. Debbie Ackerman, who actually teaches a course in Sai Sim School of Business on dealing with difficult people. And then we're going to go on to speak with the world-renowned Dr. David Lieberman, who is going to have some incredible insights into this area. And then we will culminate the show with Rabbi Beryl Wine, the esteemed Rav author, historian, and lecturer who has a lot of experiences to share with us. So there are a number of Makaras, interesting, relevant, and Makaras coming out of Sukkis, Parshas, Beratius, and we'll just mention a few of them before we go on to our guests. I'm going to start out with a Brisa that is in Masechus Yavamas, Kufchaf Aleph, and it says as follows, Tanya, Amor Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel recounted that was a time that he was traveling on a ship, this is actually a famous Gemara for a different reason, and he says as follows, I saw a ship, it broke down, and I was in tremendous sorrow on it over a Talmud Chacham that was on that other ship. And who is it? It's Tom talking about Rabbi Akiva. I was so concerned. I saw that ship break up that Rabbi Akiva was on, and when I came out to the dry land, it was Rabbi Akiva himself. He survived unbelievably, and we had a discussion in Alacha. And I asked him as follows to Rabbi Gamliel. I turned to Rabbi Akiva and said, What happened? How did you get out? out of the water. How did you survive? And he says as follows, and this is why this is a famous Gemara, Daf Shel Sfina Nizdamenli. There was a daf, literally a board from a ship that came to me and I took hold of it. This is a famous Gemara because Rav Meir Shapira used this Gemara to uh, promote the Dafayomi. This is the daf, the board, the Dafayomi, the daily daf that keeps us surviving. So that was the daf, the board of the ship that kept Rabbi Akiva alive. And he says as follows, that every time a wave came upon me, what I did was I bowed my head so it would pass right over me. And the Gemara there interjects a limud that we have from this b'risa. From here we learn if a difficult a wicked person comes upon you, is starting up with you, how do you deal with it? Do you fight? The Gemara says, bow down your head before him. In other words, don't proactively fight with him. Just 
be passive, put your head down, and the danger will subside. So that is one Leanwood. Maybe don't take the frontal approach of attacking back that difficult person. Maybe take a more passive approach. On the other hand, looking in a Pasuk in Shmuel Beis, Pasuk Chavzayin, it says as follows, Im Navar Titavar V'im Ikesh Titapal I'll read it in the English, with the pure, you act purely, with the corrupt, you act perversely. Again, with the corrupt, you act perversely. So maybe don't be a shmata when dealing with a difficult person. And just to buttress that out a little bit, I'm now looking in the Moadim Uzmanim, Chelik Vav, talking about Hashanah Rabbah. We're just coming out of Sukkis. And Rav Moshe Sternbach talks about the Arava, that throughout Sukkis we had the Arba meaning together. Even though the Arava is it represents an individual that doesn't have Torah, doesn't have, doesn't have Maisim Tovim, but as long as that Arava, that difficult, evil person is together here with the rest of Kalal Yisrael, he's included, but it comes to Hashanah Rabbah, and we've gone through Sukhis, and we have the Eged together, we have that unity together, and now we're going to separate that individual, and we're going to say enough is enough, you cannot continue in your nefarious ways, you have to improve, you have to get back on the process of tshuva, otherwise, you just can't continue with it, and we give azets, we smack around that Arav a little bit, so here we see again, that may be just bowing the head like we saw in that Bryce and Yavamos is not the right approach, but being proactive and disagreeing and uh, really being upfront with that individual, maybe that's more the approach. Just an interesting medris to mention in this regard. Parshas Bereshis says when HaKadosh Baruch Hu was uh, creating the world or about to create the world, he consulted with various values, various midos to get their input. So Chesed, the midah of Chesed said, yes, create the world. I think that's a wise idea. That's a Chesed to create the world. On the other hand, MS, when consulted by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, should the world be created? Amar al-Yivra, Shekulo, Shkarim, don't create the world. People are Shkarim. There's full of lies and thieves and cheats. Full of Sheker. MS says, why would you do such a thing to create a world that's going to be full of Sheker? Tzedek, righteousness, says yes. Create the world. So we have Chesed and Tzedek saying to create the world. So far we have MS saying don't create the world. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu consulted with the fourth Midah Shalom. And Shalom says don't create the world. Shukul Oktata because people constantly fighting. Why do you want to create a world that's not going to have Shalom? And what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do? He took MS and threw MS to the ground. In other words, he went forward and created the world and disregarded what MS said. And the question is as follows. It wasn't only MS that said, don't create the world. It was also Shalom that said, don't create the world. So why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu only deal with MS, remove MS, and throw MS to the ground? Why not do the same when it comes to Shalom? And the Rebbe from Kutz, the Kutzka Rebbe, answers as follows. What causes Machlokis from people? Why do people often get in fights, it's because they are fighting over MS. I have the MS in my court. No, the other person says, I have the MS in my court and each is fighting for the MS. How could you have two MSs? There's one absolute MS, but nonetheless, each one thinks that they have MS on their side. And once the 
variable of MS is removed, the component of MS, each is falling for MS, but if you remove that as the Kodesh Baruch Hu did then, there's no further reason to be fighting over the MS. So what comes in? Shalom. There will be Shalom, and accordingly the Mida of Shalom no longer has any reason to say, don't create the world, because when MS is removed, there will be Shalom. So that obviously relates to our issue of why are people not getting along, but sometimes, frankly, it is because there is somebody who is difficult, and we have to deal with such an individual. It comes up, oftentimes, it could be at work, it could be at shul, it could be at home, it could be anywhere there are difficult people, and we have to know how should we deal with them. Obviously, a very important question. Now, one thing that we should bear in mind is that a difficult person often has underlying issues, difficulties, and we have to try to grapple with that as well, understanding what they are going through, because when being difficult, it can't be that that person is living a happy life. And in fact, that is reflected in a Gemara in Nedarim Tachaf Beis. It says as follows, Kola Koes, Komine Gehenim Shaltimbo, anyone who is angry. It's talking about somebody who is habitually angry, regularly angry. It says, Komine, all types of Gehenim are all over that individual. What's that talking about? So we would have thought to say somebody is always angry. They're going to go to Gehenim. After this world, they're going to go to Gehenim. But it says, there are all types of Gehenim that are consuming that individual. I once heard a nice word on this, and it went as follows. It's not only that that person will go to Gehenna in the world to come, but that person in this world is living in Gehenna. It is a Gehenna to be constantly angry, and as we deal with difficult people, maybe we're the difficult person as well, but if we're not the difficult person, we should know that those people that are difficult, they are unfortunately living in Gehenna, and one thing is, can we improve their lives? Maybe if we can improve their lives a little bit, maybe that can assist the situation. So we will, Amir Tzachem, be covering all of these issues and more as we hear from our guests. But before that, let's go to the very quick riddle of the week. This week's Parsha, Parsha's Beratius, there is a medrash that says that the snake, originally before his sin, he had a koach hadibor, was able to speak, and only after enticing Chava to eat from the Eitz Adas, only then was his koach hadibor, the ability to speak, was taken away from him. And the question is as follows, where do we have a remez? Where do we have a hint? A posuk in this week's parsha that indeed hints that there was a koach hadibur that the snake was able to speak originally, but because of enticing chava, tid of the eitzadas, that koach hadibur, that ability to speak, was removed. Before we go to our guests, I heard about an exciting program literally just now, and we're going to throw Rabbi Eliada Goldwicht onto the show. He is the founder of the famous Michas Chaver program, the international program, and he's going to be telling us about uh, some great shiurim going on in the coming few days. Rabbi Goldwicht, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ravari. So this upcoming week, the Rishon Etzion and the Chief Rabbi of Yerushalayim, Rav Shlomo Amar, together with Rav Shechter, are going on a journey to be Mechazik Torah learning throughout America, more specifically the East Coast. Uh, this upcoming Tuesday night is going to be in Florida. Wednesday night is going to be in Baltimore. And then next Sunday, October 30th, is going to be in New York. And the goal is basically 
to be mechazek Torah v'lamdeah. There's at the end of every smichas chaverzman, we try to celebrate, you know, the accomplishments in, in Limina Torah. Uh, and this is just another way to do that with two G'day Yisrael, two Urim Metumim. I'll just throw in a story that I heard Mamish over Sukkis from Rebel Wine. Rebel Wine said that his father was a Talmud in the yeshiva of Rav Shimon Shkap, right after the First World War. And when they got to yeshiva, they saw that there was only one Shas and there were six volumes of Shas left. However, to their luck, Rav Shimon Shkap found one Gvir in the city that had a Shas, but the Gvir refused to donate it to the yeshiva. So what Rav Shimon um, convinced the Gvir was, give me six, I'll get six Bachram from the yeshiva, They'll come into your study for four or five months and they'll memorize these six masechtas and they'll, uh, and then the yeshiva will have six masechtas and kachavi. And Rebel Wine said that his father was known as Velvel Chulin because he memorized all the masechtas Chulin. But after, you know, so they came in day in, day out for four or five months and they, they memorized the masechtas. And one of them told me, the master of Shimon's cup, he said, I understand for four or five months, you have six guys come in, they can just write it. Why do you need them to memorize the halacha and bring it to the yeshiva? So Shimon's cup said famously, he said, you know why? He says, I don't need Sfarim on a bookshelf. I need living Sifrei Torah. I need Sifrei Torah that, that are walking, living halacha. So I think there's a schos, there's a, an amazing historic opportunity this upcoming week, uh, really to be in the presence of two Sifrei Torah, the Urim Mitumim, the Shnei Luchas Abris, Rav Shlomo Amar and Rav Herschel Shachter Shlita, who are walking Sifrei Torah. Uh, there's an opportunity to come and uh, and be in their presence and, and get brachas from them. It's open to the entire community, to men, women, and children to get brachas from them. So I'll just give the quick dates. Everything's going to be in the description, but it's Tuesday on October 25th at 6 p.m. at the Bnei Sfaradim Shul in uh, in Hollywood, Florida. And then the next night, Wednesday, October 26th at 6.30 p.m. at Shomrei Muna in, in Baltimore. And then Sunday, October 30th. So we actually have uh, Mini Yomiyun uh, starting at like 12.30 with panel with uh, Rabbi Leibowitz, Rav Ilan Siegelman, Rav Baruch Goldstein. And they're going to discuss the most outrageous halachic questions that you've ever gotten. And then we're going to have another panel right after that at 1.30 that's going to be discussing the human touch or basically the, the fifth chilek of the Shulchan Aruch, you know, personal stories and advice beyond the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. That's going to be with Rav Yitzhi Gettinger, Rav Shai Shachter, and, and Rav Chaim Shapiro. Uh, and then the main event is going to be at 2.30 with Hagona Rav Shachter Shlita and the Rishon Letzion Rav Shlomo Amar Shlita. And there's going to be a Kabbalist Pnei Rabo. It's going to be a, a massive event. It's going to be amazing. You should all come. You should all join. Everyone is welcome to come partake and be in the presence of Gdol Yisra. Now, so people register in advance or should they just show up? So either or, we have a registration. Ideally, we would love people to, to register. So again, we can have a, a number count. Uh, but if you don't have a chance to register, you can just come. Uh, but we would love for you to register. So if you can do that, that would be amazing. And so what, how do they register? How do you go about doing so the that? register? Everything's going to be in the link below. Uh, in the, in the link on the, podcast, on the website. Yeah, in the link on the website or on, or on the podcast on the bottom. Terrific. Thank you so much. And it should be tremendous. Hopefully, thousands of people will be attending. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzchak Berkovitz. Rabbi Berkovitz is the Rosh Yeshiva of Eisha Torah. He is the founder and Rosh Kolel of the Jerusalem Kolel, a renowned posek, including in the halachas of Ben Adam Chavero, which we are talking about today. Rabbi Berkovitz, thank you so much for joining us. Great being here. <laughs> Rabbi Berkowitz, there are numerous and numerous halachas of Ben Adam Lechavero. In fact, I am holding here in my hand a number of sfarim that you actually put out. I, I don't know if more are out, but I have seven volumes, one in English. And the fundamental question is, there are so many areas that we have to be careful about, how we speak on us, Tvarim, not hating others, losisna, not taking revenge, etc. How do we handle the situations when we are dealing with difficult people? Does that mean that we have to simply bite our tongues and effectively be a shmata? Or are there ways that we can indeed try to interact in a maybe stronger manner dealing with, with such difficult people? Okay, so let, let's let's divide this into really two parts. One part is how to deal with this issue of feeling frustrated, uh, hurt uh, because of the way difficult people are are uh, treating you. And there, we've got to learn to accept that everyone's got their struggles. People are good. Everyone wants to be good. People are good. We're all messed up. Face it, we're all messed up. Listen. I don't know about you, but let me talk about myself. I put up with myself, and that's not easy. You know, if you know someone else that had your collection of problems, I don't know what you think about. <laughs> we learn to we learn to accept ourselves because we know we're good. We know we're good people. We want to do what's right. We have our tough days. There are times that we just don't have the energy to be to be what we should be. But we're good people. We have to understand. People all have their problems. There's no way of knowing if I deal with my issues any better than this person deals with his issues, except that he seems to have more pronounced issues. So that's not his fault. In terms of being personally hurt, you cannot empower somebody to go deprive you of your happiness. It has to be clear that your happiness is, is there unconditionally. You don't need anyone else to accept you, to recognize you, or even treat you nicely. It's nice when they do. It's very nice. But we're not, our happiness is not dependent on that. Don't See, take it personally. Don't take it personally. That's the first part. That's the first part. He's struggling. It's his issue. It has nothing to do with me. I feel bad for him, but that's about it. That's number one. The second part is, you mentioned not turning yourself into a shmata. I mean, that's a strategic question. You have to know how to practically deal with people. There are some people that you can only deal with with a strong hand. You know, there are some people that you can only deal with if they know that, that you're not going to put up with their nonsense and then they'll be civilized. You know, so you really have to know who you're dealing with. There are some people who will never learn, why bother? There are some people that if, if, you, if you present yourself as tough, they'll take you seriously and won't take advantage of you. So do just that. But in so terms for, of, for example, if somebody is a Baumachlokas. A Baumachlokas is another story. Obama Chlokas is another story. There's a, there's a Yerushalmi, the Chavetz Chaim brings it, that you're allowed to, this is wild, you're allowed to be Motsi Shemra on Obama Chlokas. If there is someone who is constantly causing strife within a community, you have people, these rabble-rousers that are constantly, you know, they, they create camps and it's us and it's them. And there are people, you're allowed to make up stories about them. It's unbelievable. There's a Ramah. It's the only tshuva in the tshuva Sarama that he didn't sign. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have his name at the end of it. But it's clear from the marshal that this really happened. The Ramah did this. 
There was a Bamachlokis in Krakow, and the Ramah made up some terrible story about him. He was run out of town. And the Ramah was questioned about it. So he writes a whole shuva that it is mutter to be motzi shemra on a bal machlokis. This is, this is wild. This is wild. That's an exception. This is someone who divides communities. He's got to be run out of town. If there's any way of getting him out of there, you got to get him out of there. Destroying communities is a terrible thing. And there are people who are just, they are so professional. <laughs> you know, just how to do it. That's an exception. That's not the rule. And, and it's also unusual. That's also very unusual. Uh, I don't know how unusual it is. I mean, I guess the more you get involved with the cloud, the more you meet up with these people. Um, but that's not the standard difficult person that you're dealing with. Most difficult people, once again, they're good people. They have issues. They're not as destructive. They are as destructive as you will allow them to be if you allow them to deprive you of your happiness. And, and you, you really have to, you really have to take it that way and not take it personally. Right. Uh, you mentioned Los Cisna. I think it's very important. You know, I think we have to discuss the, the, the love of Los Cisna's Achicha Bilvavecha. Exactly what sinna is not permissible. Um, the Gemara tells us you're allowed to hate a Balavera. And there's even a mitzvah lesanoso. There's a mitzvah to hate a Balavera. And the Rambam paskins it. The Rambam brings it down lahalach. So the Chafetz Chaim in the, the Psicha to Sefer Avas Chesed asks that the Rambam, when he brings his Yud Gimeli Korim, the Rambam in, in his, his, his Hagdamata Sanhedrin, when he goes through the Yud Gimeli Korim, he says that anyone that doesn't believe in the Yud Gimeli Korim is an Apikoris. Anyone that believes in them but doesn't observe is not an Apikoris, he's a Balavera. Says the Rambam, a Balavera you, you have to love. So the Chavetz Chaim asked, that means that here it's saying a balaver you have to love, and there the Rambam is paskining that a balaver is mitzvah lesan also. V'tzorich iyun, he leaves it as a kasha. He leaves it as a kasha. So the real answer is in the Tanya, in Simon Lamed Beis, in the Tamperic Lamed Beis, in the Tanya. And the truth is, it's the mashmos of Tosvis as well. But we have to understand it very, 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 very carefully. The Tanya doesn't say it exactly this way, but from Tosis, this is the Mashmos. When it says that you've got to hate a Balavera, this is not personal hatred. You are not allowed to hate the essence of a Balavera. You can't hate his guts. You hate his behavior. You cannot accept his lifestyle. There is right and there is wrong. And Jews live with a passionate rejection of that which is wrong. If somebody's got a lifestyle whereby he hurts other people, you've got to reject that with a passion. Mitzvah However, the person, you got to love him. He's got a problem. You got to love him. So it's As like yitamu chataim in arts. It doesn't say chataim. But this is very, very clear. Tosis asks Akasha. The Gemara says there's a pasuk that says that if you have a if you have you have a, a, a someone's donkey is uh, is laden and is struggling with the load. So there's there's a mitzvah to help unload the donkey or a mitzvah of loading the donkey. There's prika. There's teina. The pasuk says ki tzirek chamor sonacha. You will see the donkey of your enemy. The Gemara asks, who is this enemy? Who is this enemy? And, and the Gemara is being medayik. The word is sonacho, your enemy. It's a personal enemy. So that's, how can you have a personal enemy? There's an iser of losisna. Says the Gemara, you know he's a Russia, and nobody else knows he's a Russia. 
And a Russian is a mitzvah to hate. So what did the Pusik say? That you have to help your enemy. And the Gemara says, why your enemy? Your enemy comes even before a friend. Lokuf Yitzre, because you have a Yitzhahara to not help your enemy. So the Torah tells you to help an enemy. So Tosis asked the Kasha, if we're talking about a Balavera, why should I have to help him? It's not my Yitzhahara that says not to help him. It's my Yitzhahara that doesn't want to help him. So listen to what Tosis says. Tosis says, you see, it starts off that way. It starts off that way. But once I hate him, he feels hated. So he hates me. And then I hate him back. They come to complete sinna. What does Tosis say? What Tosis is saying is it begins with an ideological rejection. And then it becomes personal. It becomes personal. And this is really the key. We are passionate when it comes to ideology. We are passionate when it comes to behavior. We are passionate about right and wrong. On a personal level, we love Jews, period. We love Jews. That has to be so clear. You know, Gdoli Olam argued about all kinds of things and they called each other names. The Ravid, what the Ravid doesn't write about the Ramba. You think they hated each other? There's a, a story I, I, I always tell over. It was one of, one of my early years in Yerushalayim. So I had friends in Brisk, the learning, learning by, by Beryl in Brisk. And, and uh, one Friday night in his Chumashir, he was referring to a schmooze that Reb Chaim Shmulevitz said in the mirror. And he said, my father, the briskerov, would not have drunk his wine. In other words, he was saying Reb Chaim said something that was apicarsis. Not much later, Reb Chaim's grandson, Reb granddaughter, married a brisker, married a Talmud of, of, of Reb Beryl. Reb Beryl was at the wedding. Reb Chaim Shmulevitz walked in and Reb Beryl stood up malokomoso. He stood up. And you had, to, I know, like, oh, what are they, these guys were looking. Reb Beryl stood up for an apicarsis. What's going on here? You, you got to understand something. You can passionately disagree with somebody, and Agdolim use superlatives. It's apikarsis, it's avodazore, it's anything you want. What do they think of the person? Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, he was the greatest. <laughs> of course you stand up for Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. I don't know, today, and that's, Chazal say the second base Hamikdash was destroyed because of Chisina Aschina. Do you know what was going on? There was a major machlokis between the Prushim and the Buryonim of whether or not to surrender to Rome. This was a major ideological disagreement. Is, is nationalism, is self-rule something that, we're, that, we're, that we are most nefesh for or not? A machlokis, the Prushim, the Chachamim, they held as long as there was freedom of religion. Okay, so it'll be a puppet state of Rome. What can you do? Mashiach isn't here yet. And the Buryonim said, we got to fight. And... They were killing each other. Chazal called that sinas chinam. Chinam. The personal hatred was chinam. There's never a justification for personal hatred. You gotta love Jews. You disagree with a passion. I think this is the opposite of what's going on in the West today. You know, you've got to accept everybody's ideology because everyone has the right to an ideology. But on a personal level, I don't see that people are especially nice to one another. Well, you're right. You're right. That is the opposite. That's very interesting <laughs> dynamic there. So, so when it comes to us, sinas chinam, focus on the issues. Don't for, focus on the individual. Focus on the issues. Exactly. Focus on the issues. So that, that's when you have an ideological disagreement or a behavioral. When you, someone's got a behavioral issue, his behavior is intolerable. But you love him as a person. 
focus on the issue. So let, let me ask a number of specific situations. Maybe I'll group them all together and the Rav can decide which to answer in which order. So yeah, this, these are certain things that I see uh, commonly. Uh, you, you walk into shul and uh, you sit in somebody's seat or you're in shul and you're a regular and uh, there's that guy that throws people out of his seat and not only his seat, but he thinks it's a, it's a, it's a criminal act that even if you're sitting in somebody else's seat, he's going he's gonna to get up and, and tell you you can't sit there and uh, not always in, in the most kind of way. So, and you've spoken with him over and over again, don't do that, let him sit there. That would be situation number one. Situation number two, there's a no smoking sign. Although there shouldn't be any need to have a non-smoking sign, it should be obvious that you don't smoke smoke anywhere near people. Uh, but uh, there's a no smoking sign and uh, it's it's in the shul yard, for example, and somebody's sitting there smoking and you ask him and he says it's not hurting anyone. Klum kara, nothing's happening. It's your problem. Uh, so that would be number two. Or somebody that talks regularly during davening, you've, you told them, please don't speak, please don't speak, and he cannot control his mouth. There's a disconnect between the uh, the, the, the seichel and the mouth. I mean, sometimes there's a disconnect between them. Or somebody who regularly disturbs davening by collecting svarim, which is a nice thing to do, but probably not the best time during davening. So how do you deal with these issues? And maybe they're the same or maybe Maybe they're different issues in dealing with that person that one time, two times, or three times doesn't get the message. So I don't know if you'll get across to him. I, I don't. I don't really know if you're going to be able to change what he does. I really don't know. There's something I have found that works for most people. The Ramam says that when you give tochoch, it has to be out of love and it shouldn't be intimidating. It's very, very important that when you approach people because you really feel that the, what they're doing is wrong, that you don't get emotional about it. And on the contrary, you're extremely respectful of them. I have found that if you smother people in covet, if you show them so much respect, they are much more receptive. If they really believe that you believe in them, they are so much more receptive. You know, what you're talking about in many cases is a matter of a balshita. You can't argue shitas with a balshita. That's a personality. However, you can affect him in a personal way. Uh, I, you mentioned smoking. Uh, another story. When I was in my, 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 my years in the mirror, the early years for sure, the, if you kept the windows open in the winter, it was freezing. So you have to shut them. But there was no air. And people were smoking. So a bunch of us got together. We went to Rebel Yashiv and asked him, is there anything we can do about it? And he said, call a meeting, everyone is welcome, and take a vote of whether or not we should smoke in the base mandrish. We did that, the non-smokers -smoke, non showed up, the smokers boycotted it, it was unanimous. So we put up a note that al peep sock revel yashiv, it is usher to smoke in the base mandrish. Of course, it did nothing. Not only that, but Rabbeinu Shfinkel is a colonel of Rach, the Rosh Hashiva sees the sign and he said to take it down said, I own this building. Nobody can tell me what the rules are here. You can't take a vote about what goes on in my building, okay? The next day, there was a note from the Hanhola of the yeshiva. We are asking the smokers to kindly be considerate of the non-smokers. From that day on, nobody smoked in the base medrash. So long as it's a matter of right and wrong in principle, there are too many balayshita. You ask for chesed, Jews love doing chesed. <laughs> That's an amazing story. An amazing story. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful lesson. A beautiful lesson. Uh, uh, you know, people it, it, kicking people out of their seats. You can argue with them. What do you mean? There's Allah, Chayvah, Makam, Kavuan. 
you're not going to get anywhere. If, if someone, if someone really just sees the halacha, you know, to the point that the Ben Adam Lachavero, you know, just didn't register for some reason, he doesn't know what it feels like to get thrown out of a seat when you're a stranger in a shul, a newcomer to a shul. You know, you can try explaining it to him, but I think the most important thing is first be machabed him. You know, he has to know how much you respect the fact that he's such a medatic and halacha. And then nevertheless tell him, you know, on a Ben Adam Lachavero level, you're better off having the Gabai find him another seat. It feels Absolutely. terrible. It feels terrible to be thrown out of a seat. It feels terrible to be thrown out of a seat. A Gabai comes very gently, kindly, and of course with a smile, says, someone sits here, but there's an open seat over there. He feels so much better about it. People collecting Svarim are doing a wonderful thing. The fact that, I don't know what they're doing for their davening, but that it's disturbing other people's davening, you know, they don't realize that. You, might, you can't just scream at them. They're doing a, they're doing a, they're doing a chesed. It's only after they know how much you value the fact that they're collecting svarim, and now you want to come and share a problem with them. You know, on the one hand, you know you're the only, you're the one that's collecting the svarim. Everyone else is just dumping it, and you really care. About it. You know, on the other hand, it is it is disturbing other people's davening. You know, let's see, can we come up with some kind of plan? I'm sure he'll understand what to do. Right, right. Very good. Very good. Lush and horror in this context. You're dealing with the difficult situation and uh, don't know how to handle it. Certainly, if you go to the Rav, you go to a therapist, whatever it may be, that there would be a heter to speak in that context. Speaking with one's wife or speaking with the Gabai or speaking with people in shul to try to deal with these issues. Would the same heterim apply or is that a little bit too extensive? If you really need someone else to intervene, such as the Gabai, then of course you discuss it with him. I would hope that the Gabai is used to this, doesn't take it personally, knows how to deal with difficult people. That is probably the most important responsibility of a Gabai, because every shul's got a bunch of them. <laughs> and they're good people. They're good people. So yeah, uh, uh, if, a, if, if the Gabai is, 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 is qualified to deal with it, that's okay. That's all right. Of course, your kavana has to be tulatoelas. Don't tell anything that's unnecessary. No, that, that, that's very, very clear. Discussing with one's wife is not so simple. And, and, you know, a wife having to share with her husband all of the things she's struggling with is totally justified because that's his responsibility. A husband, you know, Luxuba is very one-sided. A husband has full responsibility for the physical and emotional well-being of his wife. Included in that is to hear her out. He's got to be a sounding board. Anything she has to get out of her system, he's the person to turn to, and he can't go tell her this is Lushen Har. That is wrong. He has a responsibility. He's not allowed to take it as fact. I always tell therapists the same story, but it's certainly true for husbands. Your wife is not lying to you. She is sharing with you how she experienced something. Could she have experienced it otherwise? Possibly. We're all like that. You know, we all, all we can ever relate, our reality is the reality of our experience. Perhaps if we had a different mindset, we would have experienced things differently, or if we knew different information, we would have experienced it differently. So he's got to believe that this is what she experienced, and she needs all the support for what she just went through. You'd never tell your wife, this is Lashon Hara, I'm not interested. On the other hand, for a husband, he should not burden his wife with this stuff, and certainly not Lashon Hara that is not justified. You need support. Your wife is probably the last person you want to do that with, because you never know what it's going to turn into. She wants to be there for you. She may strengthen it instead of calming you down. She may actually, you know, want to support you and make you feel even more so that you're right and get you even more worked up about it. 
it could be, it could be dangerous. Now, in certain contexts, you may have to discuss if she so she can understand what you're going through. Certainly, things that relate to her. Something that relates to her, of course, that's the regular halach of toelis. But this natural, you know, this feeling that, of course, the the, the first person I I would share my frustrations with uh, is my wife. That's not right. It's really, really not right. But you do have to have people that you can go to. Obviously, if you can go to someone who doesn't know whom you're talking about, that's so much better. Right, right. So, Rabbi Berkowitz, if I could recap. And I want to ask one final and broader question. What, what we're saying, I think, is is basically three kalim. Number one, don't take anything personally. Number two, when dealing with somebody difficult, show kavod, inspire them. You can do it. Know that the person really intends to do good. Maybe he's having a difficult time executing on it. And and number three, folks, don't focus on shitas, focus on the chesed. Don't talk directly to the issue. You're not going to get anywhere, but try to inspire the person from another direction. So if we could globalize that, we've talked a lot about shul issues. How about if you're dealing with your boss or your teacher or your rosh yeshiva or your spouse that you're having a difficult time with? Would we apply those three same concepts, those principles, or are there other things that we need to know about? You didn't get that question from the Rebbe Meresh, did you? No, no, no. Or, or the Talmud Meresh. No, no, absolutely not. They're <laughs> delighted with their Rosh Hashiva. <laughs> um, what do you do with a difficult boss? You have to learn to deal with him. Um, once again, respect is probably the best way to go. You may have to set some boundaries here, you know, of, of what he can or can't do. Generally speaking, if you're willing to forego recognition for things that you do good, that you do well, and he's taking the credit for it, and you're willing to give him the credit for it, you could probably get a lot of mileage out of that. I, I know people, you know, uh, I'm turning everyone, like I'm telling everyone that they have, to, they have to suffer. No, 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 no. This is coming from strength, not weakness. This is strategy. You've made a decision. I want to make this work. How am I going to make this work? I'm going to, I'm going to credit him with everything good I do. He's going to be happy. This is going to be a very good partnership. It would have been so much easier if I had a boss that appreciated me and was willing to acknowledge that. But if that's not what I have, then at least let's make this work. And you can be happy with it. The Torah does expect, expect for us to be bigger people. Why is Hashem giving you this situation? You know, the Chinuch says this with regard to revenge. He says, someone did something to you, one second. This would not have happened if Hashem didn't think you needed it. And he brings the passage what David says about Shimei ben Ger, Hashem over Lola It's nothing personal. Hashem told him to curse me. I gotta, I've got to do my chesh ben anefesh. So yes, we have to accept a difficult boss, even a difficult Rebbe, one's own Rebbe, the Rebbe of one's children. The person's difficult. The key is how to make this work. The key is not, oh, I've got to show him. The key is to make this work. If you can make this work by showing him a lot of respect, by coming up with ideas and then telling everyone what a genius he was, that he did this and this, which was really your idea, and he's so happy, it's worth it. As we say in Hebrew, be a chacham, don't be tzodek. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this works. This works. So it seems to be... uh, get over the ego yeah i mean you know we say ego it sounds like an accusation or something but you you have to be able to put up you have to be able to put up and really really swallow your pride and put up with someone that the only way you can work with is if you you give him the credit for everything it's worth it it's really worth it right
Right. Rabbi Berkowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. So many gems, so many gems to incorporate into our lives. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. <laughs> joining us now is Dr. Debbie Ackerman. Dr. Ackerman has a doctorate in social welfare and is a licensed social worker with many specialties, including addiction, borderline personality, and so many other uh, challenges that people have. She has a private practice in Passaic. Among her activities, and that's the most relevant for our show today, she teaches a class on dealing with difficult people at the Sai Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. Dr. Ackerman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. This is a big honor. Thank you. It's our pleasure. So we are talking about what you teach about, and that is difficult people. So let's start with the basics. Why are some people difficult to deal with? And are there different types, different categories? We're going to categorize people that we come and encounter. Give us the lay of the land. So that's a very good question to, to start with. There are different types of what we call difficult people. Um, I'm trained as a social worker and teaching this class, I take my social work education and skill and apply it to the business sector. So I don't really believe that people are inherently good or bad. I think that they have certain personalities and then the social work philosophy, which I really like, is that the environment kind of presses upon people and helps shape them into who they are, nature, nurture. That's kind of the way we look at things. So people can be difficult. They can be dominant. They can be reactive. They can be aggressive. They can be passive aggressive. They can be very controlling. And there definitely are different categories. The two main categories that I work with are one, people who have, let's say, chemical imbalances, and that will definitely affect the way a person thinks and the way a person feels and acts. And then there are people that have personality disorders. And those are diff that's a different category and sometimes a little bit tougher um, to diagnose and to manage. I think that one of the things people often confuse is that just because you have a mental disorder, let's say a personality disorder, uh, you can be and you are exceedingly bright. And when people do have uh, disorders, either chemical or personality, and people say to me, yeah, but they're so successful and they're so smart, right? Because it doesn't necessarily have to do with cognition. There are other things in the brain that have to do with cognition, but not this. And quite frankly, I specialize in addiction. When I work with somebody who has a addiction and then gets into recovery, emerges not only a bright, but like the most creative person I have ever seen. The vast majority of my clients that have the disease of addiction are incredibly creative. So yeah, there, there are definite different types. And the trick is to kind of figure out what it is and how to work with it. Uh -huh. So when you're encountering somebody and the person is regularly difficult, it's likely that either it's a chemical imbalance or a personality disorder. So uh, as we encounter these types of people, what are the typical characteristics that we're going to see in somebody that fits into these categories? You can have people who are manipulative. Right. And they're going to kind of, uh, they kind of smell that, that, uh, there's a power differential and then they'll manipulate you into doing things that you don't want to do. You can have people who are reactive, uh, which means that, you know, when you kind of quote walk on eggshells where you say something and they just explode. And that's also, that's a power tactic. Yelling at somebody or raising your voice at somebody, as we know now, is called emotional abuse. And we call that the silent bruise because they'll do it in private. Nobody really hears them. And you just kind of walk out like you're very, you're stunned, you're stung. You're and even you're, you're emotionally punched. Completely emotionally punched. And if they do it within a room full of people, then usually the room kind of like recoils and, and steps back and doesn't really know what to do. Uh, there are people who have black and white thinking. 
right? It's either yes or no. It, it's my way or the highway. They don't really have the capacity to, to mediate, to go into a different way of thinking. That is a very difficult person to work with. Other people who have what we call push-pull, which is they will kind of push you away from them by doing something you don't like and then pull you back and kind of sweet talk you into coming back. And it's a constant pattern. They push you away, they pull you in. They push you away, they pull you in. And then there are people that are just narcissistic. And narcissistic people are particularly difficult uh, because at the outset, they are unbelievably charming. I mean, unbelievably charming, usually very bright, and they know how to read a room and how to read people. And they get you to do what they want and then you become kind of like a, a pawn on their chess game. They're not particularly interested in what you think or say or feel. They're not. They're interested in having you work for their purpose. And the other thing that I think is extremely important in this entire conversation is we're talking about a work environment. The very nature of being in a work environment is a power differential. Somebody is working and somebody is paying. So because you're working in the business sector, and I think the vast majority of people who have their jobs want their jobs, not only for the financial remuneration, but to build a career, to have that sense of identity, to go somewhere in the world. So many times employment situations are not on an even playing field. They're not. You're starting out, you have a difficult boss, you're miserable in your job, you can't move, you're going to want a good recommendation from the company. So whenever you have a relationship that's not equal in power, the chances for difficult people to be more difficult or not to be called on their difficulty increases. Uh -huh, interesting. That's going to be the nurture environment that it's... Uh... Yeah, but it, it's very demoralizing for people who are in that environment. You know, I think work situations are incredible. You take people who have no idea who they are from different walks of life, you put them together for 40 hours a week, and you say, not only do you have to get along, but you have to produce and produce at a very high level. Now, COVID changed all this. We're all working from home and I get it, but now as we're all kind of coming back into the office and redoing that, it's actually a really fascinating dynamic, right? You're not working with your neighbors or your people from Shoal or a Hevra that you would have picked. Somebody it could be from Scarsdale, from the Bronx, from Brooklyn, from different cultural backgrounds, religious philosophies. And you got to make it and make it work well because people are expecting results. So now that, that's in the work context. How about if the uh, difficult person is your, uh, your Rebbe or your Rosh Hashiva or your parent or your spouse? How okay. would this all uh, translate into that relationship? Rebbe. Rosh Hashiva is a power differential again. They're it's the on same. Top, it's like employment. On top of you, right. And in terms of spouses, there can be a major power differential. Absolutely. That's where we get into domestic violence. Uh, if somebody's making more money, if somebody controls the purse strings, that's one way that people really do tend to control people. But I don't think that we really want to go down the, the road of uh, domestic violence or abuse. But what it amounts to is if somebody is difficult, do you have the knowledge and the insight to recognize that they're difficult so that you can effectively deal with it? Because one of the things that we look at is mental health, period, is the ability to have what we call insight. Can I say to you, Rabbi Wasserman, you tell me your good points and your weak points. And if you can actually talk to me and say, okay, well, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses, well, you have what we call insight. If you ask me, Dr. Ackerman, can you tell me your weak points and strong points? Absolutely, no problem. As a therapist, we do an enormous amount of self-reflection daily, right? We have to be very aware of what we're thinking and feeling to be effective. People who have more notably the personality issues, they have very poor insight. They're, they're not good at being aware 
of who they are, what they're doing and what they're feeling. Yeah. I have had people work with, I've, I've worked with people who quite frankly are going to make more money than I'll ever see in my entire life. I mean, like hedge fund managers and really, really incredibly successful people. And you sit them down and you're like, so how are you feeling? And they just give you this blank look, like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how do you feel? You know, are you, are you mad? Are you, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you glad? And they look at you like, like I'm speaking Swahili. I've had physicians, I've had scientists, I've had incredibly brilliant people. They're just not tuned into their feelings. And if you're not tuned into your feelings, you most certainly cannot tune into someone else's feelings. Right. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Now, does that also translate into their not caring what other people think about them or they may care, but they're just not in touch with it? I hope, I think, and I hope the vast majority of people really do care what people think. They do. Uh, there's an expression in our business that hurt people, comma, hurt people. If you're hurting inside, then you're going to hurt somebody else. Uh, interestingly, and I'm a big 12-step individual because of my work in addiction, there's kind of this saying in 12-step that says, if you point two fingers at somebody, three fingers come back at you. Meaning if you blame somebody for something, really you're projecting it back on yourself. And from what I was told that the Baal Shem Tov said that many, many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I think people deep down want want to be liked, and they want to be empathic. I think that the nurture part, again, the work environment, the stress, the stress of paying the mortgage, the home, maybe you're fighting with your wife, maybe you have to deal with elderly parents, who knows what's going on, and you're not, again, aware of how to work with that and then appear calm and collected and not projected onto another person. So I really do think the vast majority of people do want to be liked, they just don't know how, and they cover it up with, they cover it up with anger. Behind anger is fear. Anger is a cover for people who are scared. And what I tell people is like, if you pass the yard and there's a puppy in the yard, right? They start barking like crazy. Well, I think what they're really trying to show you is don't mess with me. Look what I can do. And when people have that attitude of like, don't mess with me, look what I can do. It comes out very angry. But if you go beneath that, they're scared. And what's the fear of rejection? Rejection, failure, um, you know, not measuring up to some narrative that they think in their brain, what, whatever their rejection piece is. And I'm a therapist. Then we go back to, well, what happened when you were three? And I'm a big believer in that. <laughs> Definitely. It works. The only people that I think really honestly don't care are narcissists that are really at the edge and are bordering on like sociopaths. And then already you started to get into real pathology. Your average narcissist, they also appear not to really, you're, you're there to help them. As long as you help them and you make them look good, you're in good shape. Mm -hmm. The minute you're not really towing the line, different story. So if, if somebody's dealing with difficult people, does it matter the reason that they're a difficult person? Meaning, is it a personality disorder? Is it a chemical misbalance? Is it this or that? In, in my trying to nav navigate how to deal with this person. Yeah. Well, the most important part of that question is, again, is the person going to be honest with, with themselves and with you and have, again, the insight to say, look, this isn't you, it's me. I'm having something going on. I'm taking care of it. I apologize for the way I behaved. That's somebody who has done work on themselves and has that insight. Uh, people that have chemical imbalances, that's usually like depression, anxiety, bipolar, something that's chemical. And that's usually that's not really difficult. That's like more pervasive. They're just not able to function within society on many different levels. Somebody with a personality disorder, if you are going to be working or dealing with something like that, the only change that's going to happen is with you. We don't change anybody. No one. 
you don't change your wife, you don't change your kids, you don't change your parents, and you most certainly don't change your boss, nor do you change the people you work with. The only person that you actually have control over is yourself. And when I do work with people who are in these situations, then we work on how they can react, A, to protect themselves, and B, to just be able to go through that situation and not only survive, but thrive. Now, here's the funny thing. When you start to change yourself, things change. That's a system theory. If I change the way I'm acting, you're going to change the way you're acting because I'm not going to react to you in the way that you want or in the way that you expect. So things will change. Does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. But you you, you work on yourself and uh, as a consequence, hopefully- Things too. are going to change. That's a very big, that's very huge in my uh, work with addiction. I work with people who have the disease of addiction and then I work with their partners. The partners are like, fix them, fix them. They're, they're drinking, they're doing drugs, they're doing all sorts of things, fix them. I'm like, no, I'm not fixing them and I'm going to fix you. You go into your own recovery. People get very upset by that. Why am I going into recovery? It's my husband who's the alcoholic. It's my husband who's the drug addict. No, because the way you're reacting with him, there's a bad interest interaction going on that's actually very bad for you and is causing you to act in ways that are making you miserable and making the person with the addiction also miserable. So he's got to go on his road of recovery and you have to go on your road of recovery. And this works. I have yet to see it fail. And that's really basically based on 12-step program, which I'm a huge fan of. And I think the world should be in a 12-step program and we'd be okay. Addiction. Even non-addicts. Non the world. The world, just if the world was in a 12-step program, we'd probably be all on the eagle on the way to Israel with the Messiah. It, it just, it allows you an ability to have a confrontation in a rational adult manner, not to personalize it, to learn when to let go. It's all based on Torah. But yeah, I, I'm, I think we should teach 12-step in the business school. That's my next thing. And I think I did teach it in the, in the class when I did the difficult people. So I thought it was that important. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, and now we've been talking about somebody dealing with the difficult person. And uh, how about if you may be the difficult person? How can you self-diagnose? How can you say it's difficult for them, as you mentioned, for, to have introspection? Um, but if they would want to do that, uh, somebody who's getting in fights with other people and says, uh, uh, it would be unusual, but to say, maybe it's me because typically it's him, 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 her, her, or somebody else. But if they want to take the big step and say, maybe it's me. How can they start thinking about maybe it's me? Okay. The point that you said the first is the most important thing. If you can stop blaming other people, right? Like, oh, if you were married to my wife, you would drink also. Or no, my, my workers are ridiculous. My mother is crazy. My in-laws are horrific. If it's constantly at somebody else and you can stop saying, well, it's them, not me, then you've won more than half the battle. Things to look for, quite frankly, are how do you get along with people? How do you get along with your spouse? How do you get along with your kids? How do you get along with people in shul? How do you get along with people you work with? Do people enjoy being around you? Do people avoid you? How are you when you're angry? And be honest. I yell a little. A little? How do you act when you are in a stressful situation? Are you generally happy, genuinely happy with your life? Do you have a sense of peace? Do you have a sense of, I'm accomplishing what I need to. I'm very happy with the path that Hashem is taking me down. And I'm really okay. Because if you really have all that, Rabbi Wasserman, you're not going to be mean to anybody because you're extremely comfortable with who you are, both from the inside and the out. There's no jealousy. You understand that the road that you have been put down has been uniquely put there for you. 
and you have no need. But the issue is that the majority of people with personality issues before they get treatment have very poor insight. And so they do blame other people for their ills. And it's a big world. You can blame a lot of people. There's always someone to blame. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So are you saying it, it really comes down to self-esteem, healthy self-esteem? I think, well, I really think a lot of it comes down to trauma. I think there is so much unresolved trauma in our generation that people just don't even recognize is trauma. And if you don't take care of that as a child, that is definitely going to come back and stay with you through your adulthood. And when I mean trauma, I mean, and I'm not judging, I mean, growing up in a house where parents were screaming and yelling, going to a, a school where you were hit. I mean, there are a lot of schools today that still routinely hit children that is going to cause them trauma that that hurts them. Um, growing up in a house where there was poverty, growing up in a house where there was addiction. Trauma is, I think, the, the one factor that will really like addle somebody's brain uh, to a point that, yeah, they're going to behave not well. And that's a post-trauma reaction. The vast majority of people who come to see me have had some or significant amounts of trauma in their past. Yeah, trauma can be very broad. Yeah. Trauma doesn't mean necessarily sexual abuse and and the like. Right. It could be, yeah. But but if you're right, but if you're a child and your parents are shrieking at each other, that's traumatizing for a child. A right. three has no way to internalize that. A five year old has no way to internalize that. If you're growing up and and there's no money and you are not adequately fed or you are not adequately clothed or you're made fun of in school for not being adequately fed or clothed for a child that's trauma right at, at you know well I'm 25 but you know when we get into our that's a joke when we get into our older years you have an ability to kind of separate that but a child cannot so what you don't consider traumatic for a child really can have lasting uh impact on their life and then i have to bring in my own soapbox there's so much addiction in the world and in our community so much addiction that people don't even know about and Growing up in the house where there is one person who has a disease of addiction, that is traumatic. Just by and large, that's a trauma. Right, right. And there are so many people that you know that have that, that you can't tell because again, they're exceedingly bright and they can be what we call functioning addicts. And if you're growing up in that environment, yeah, you're traumatized and you might not even recognize it until you go for therapy and you sit back and start talking to somebody. Realize it and realize it. So let's go to solutions. We've been right. talking about uh, the reasons for right. various personality disorders and dealing with challenging people. How do you deal with? What are some tactics, strategies which can which can be used to deal with difficult people? Okay. So first and foremost, you take care of yourself. And self-care uh, is, you know, not just making sure you light, you know, lavender candles all over your house and have that beautiful glow. It literally means showing up to your work well rested, well fed exercised, like in, you know, davened, whatever, in a state of I am okay. Because if you're tired, if you're hungry, right? And in addiction, we call that halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you're going to be triggered that much easier. If you arrive in a place where you are literally physically and emotionally okay, somebody comes at you, the first thing I would tell somebody is do not react. Just never don't react right away. They're really going at you as tough as it is. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Don't answer a question right away. This isn't a subpoena. Buy time for your brain to literally process the information. What do you think about this? And what do you get? Very good question. Um, I need a little bit of time to think about that. Let me think about that and I'll get back to you. Right now, you have literally like you've put some space between you and the aggressor 
and you have bought your brain, what it needs most right then is time. I need time. Right? Does that make sense to you? Yes, it yeah. does. Um, when we deal but with counting to five, biting your tongue. Yeah. And that's hard for people because we all have egos and we want to be right. And what you're confronting me, well, I'm going to confront you, right? But accept what you can change and don't change what you can't. And that is another 12-step concept. You're not going to change that abusive boss, but you're going to change how you react. And actually in Daniel Goleman's book, which is uh, what we teach in the class of emotional intelligence, they give an example uh, of a computer exec. I'm not even sure if it was I don't know who it was, somebody famous. And he walked into the meeting room ranting and raving. I mean, just screaming his head off, some problem. And one of the people tried to mollify him, screaming even louder. And somebody else went up and he's screaming even louder. Finally, one woman got up, started talking in a very calm voice, very low, because that's a very dysregulated person. And she spoke very softly and very calmly. And she kept saying what she wanted to say over and over. This is what we need to do. This is what's going to happen. Her tone was very modulated and very even. He calmed down. He heard what she had to say. He looked for him and he said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And he walked out. Because if somebody is reactive and we call that dysregulated and you meet them with your own reactivity and dysregulation, you've created a fire. You've created a huge combustible activity. If that person is a fire and you meet them with a bucket of sand or water, you're not inflaming it you're going to die it down. So your reaction has to be the one that you look at. That's one of the things. If you're really dealing with somebody who's incredibly narcissistic, we talk about being what we call the gray rock, which is the less information, the better. Yes. No. Uh-huh. I hear you. Okay. Yes. No. Now, how sustainable that is for the long term? Not sure. But at least for the short term, again, to buy you time, to buy you space in your brain, to buy you time to look for another job, it will lessen the amount of verbal abuse that you're getting. Those are two ways. Very good. Very good. All right. We have what to implement. <laughs> we do. We do. Assuming we're not the difficult person, we have what to implement. Well, but that's what, again, that's a mistake people make. You don't do anything to fix the other person, no matter what relationship you're talking to me about. You work on you and how you respond. And then by nature, the other person is going to respond the other way. If you simply stare at somebody who is just literally reacting like that and going off, they're going to stop at some point. I mean, you're not giving them anything else to go on and they want you to give them something else to go on. Don't give it to them. So don't put fuel on the fire. Don't even engage Look at it as an energy source. You don't want to put any more energy into that source. You will not even, it's not going to take up space in your brain. It's not going to take up space in your heart. You're just simply not going to engage. You want to talk to me calmly, my pleasure. You want to be solution-oriented, my pleasure. This is not happening. It's just not happening. And that's it. Very so. wise advice. Dr. Ackerman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really thank you. Uh, Learned a lot, and um, I uh, I would be very happy to come on again. This is wonderful, and um, pleasure to work with you. I hope we can do this again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All the best. Joining us now is Dr. David Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a leader in the fields of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. He has written 11 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, which have been translated into 27 languages and have sold more than three million copies worldwide. Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Great to have you back on the show. We are talking about when people get older, do they get cranky? 
Is that really a thing? It seems to be. It seems to be you see some people who are elderly, they're cranky, but on the other hand, some people are not cranky. So we'll talk about from that perspective, do people get cranky? And if you're not the cranky person, but you're having to deal with the cranky or miserable, difficult person, how do you handle that? So uh, just let, let's ask, is, is that is that a true thing? I did find uh, that there's a concept of the grumpy old man complex. Is there validity to that? And, and why does it happen if there is validity to that concept? Yeah, so kind of, uh, it can. I remember uh, my father, Allah Shalom, he called me up years ago and he said he finally became old. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said he was at the supermarket and he yelled at the bag boy because he was making the bags too heavy. <laughs> and he goes, my gosh, I finally turned into that old person who's yelling at the poor bag boy. Uh, so look, you know what? There are a number of factors that go into it. You know, certainly there's hormonal changes, there's nutritional changes, um, there's cognitive decline. And all these things can wear on a person's emotional health. And yeah, unfortunately, cracks in um, our, this, you know, the uh, veneer of our civility can begin to show. And we don't always have the um, ability or the capacity, you know, to put on that uh, right persona. And our true thoughts and feelings sometimes seep out uh, in, in not the most uh, harmonious way. Uh -huh. So the, the phrase that I found was grumpy old man complex. Is this specifically a male thing? If it's a hormonal thing, we could find a way to distinguish between or certainly find differences between men and women. Or is this uh, more of an elderly thing? Or is it men, women, or is it both? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think a lot has to do with the personality. And certainly in our culture, um, I, I think, you know, men uh, might find themselves a little bit more assertive than women if we'll stereotype here or just paint with a broad brush. Uh, so you're going to see those cracks come through. But also a lot, again, has to do with the cognitive decline. And so, you know, you have women who live, I think, on average, probably seven or eight years uh, longer than men. So they are likely in better physical shape. And so goes our physical shape. So goes our uh, mental shape. So one of the best things we can do just parathetically is exercise. Exercise not only helps the body, but it's been shown time and time and time again, be very effective against mental decline. Uh, and because our emotional and mental health is intimately linked with our cognitive health, the healthier we are uh, nutritionally wise and the healthier our brain is, the more effective our mind is going to work. I guess that goes to the concept of is there a way to try to avoid it? And what you're saying is uh, keeping yourself healthy, exercising, nutrition are ways at least to try to assist pushing it off or, or avoiding it somewhat. Right. Look, you know, anyone, you know, almost anyone will become grumpy, will become a little bit down where they don't have a meaning. They don't have a direction. Um, as a matter of fact, I think there's another study. It's fascinating. It's something like um, on average, seven years after a person retires uh, from whatever it is they were doing, uh, they die uh, for whatever, however that works. I, I may be um, misremembering the statistic, but, you know, when a person just doesn't have th that purpose, they don't have meaning, they don't have something that moves them forward at 
20 or 80 or 90, it's easy to feel down. Uh, and certainly as a person gets older, you know, feeling that they don't have the significance, they don't have the control, they don't have, you know, the ability to be able to do what they wanted, you know, it's going to seep in. Uh, so, you know, revitalizing our neshama and our passion, our purpose and making plans, you know, for what it is that we want to accomplish in those later years can be very effective towards mitigating uh, some of that, you know, emotional and mental decline. But remember, too, is that as a person gets older, invariably, the body begins to, you know, wear and tear and physical pain is also going to wear on a person's um, you know, ability to maintain themselves emotionally. You know, when you have a toothache, it's very hard to be nice to the world around you, even though, of course, their innate self-worth didn't diminish because you're in pain. So as we get older and we've got aches and pains, that physical pain certainly can wear on us emotionally and mentally and make it that much more difficult for us to be able to, um, you know, to be more polite and to be less grumpy, as it were. Right. So, so let, let's change vein a little bit and talk about those people who have to deal with the irritable. It could be elderly, it could be non-elderly as well. For example, the spouse is uh, not irritable and has an irritable spouse or the children dealing with a uh, cranky parent or something like that. What, what are some aids that you have as to how to handle? You have to, if, especially if it's a parent, you have to still show covered. How, how do you deal with those uh, challenging situations of irritability and crankiness? Right. That's a good question. And, you know, whether the person is 5, 50 or 100, the dynamics are going to be the same. Nobody wants to feel minimized. Nobody wants to feel marginalized. No one wants to feel invalidated or disrespected. Uh, so you really want, particularly as you get older, you know, as a person gets older, you know, they, they it's easy to feel that they have less to contribute, that people, they're needed less. Um, and really what we all want is a sense of autonomy, a sense of control to be able to have some say and some sway in our lives and in our relationships. So one of the worst things we can do uh, in a situation like that is to dismiss how the person's feeling and to minimize it and say, oh, it's not such a big deal or and so on. So what you're really doing is you're telling the person how their feeling is invalid, uh, which only further you know, uh, makes them feel more frustrated and less in control and less significant. So the keys in any relationship, again, communication is empathy and validation is letting this person know that you really uh, do feel their pain. And empathy is not sympathy. Empathy fosters connection that their pain is your pain. Sympathy fosters disconnection. You know, sympathy is, wow, stinks to be you, but I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. Empathy is, wow, you know, the, the pain that this person is experiencing is etched on your face. And validation has nothing to do with right and wrong. It's not about, oh, you're saying you, you still have a lot to contribute or you're making a big deal. It's not about the facts. Validation is only an extension of empathy where you express to this person that you understand that they're in pain and it makes sense to you. And, and that catharsis, you know, Shlomo HaMelech says the problem shared is a problem have. So allowing this person, we see sometimes older people, they just want to talk because they just want that connection. And when we starve them and we, we short circuit it, we're really moving them further away from emotional stability. What they want is to feel heard to feel understood. They want to reminisce. They want to talk about the old days. They want to hear about what's going on with you. They want that connection. So, you know, if you don't have that, you know, emotional bandwidth to give them and you're just preoccupied, then better to respectfully not engage because it just won't be a productive conversation. But when you can give, meaning giving by allowing them 
to talk or to vent or to express how they feel. Uh, it's a beautiful chesed and it is tremendous because what's interesting is that when a person is in pain, physical pain is, or, or, or even emotional pain, whatever the pain is, that pain is exacerbated by isolation when we feel alone, when we don't feel like anyone understands us. So when you make that connection to the person and you empathize and validate, whatever pain was exacerbated by isolation is alleviated. So they literally feel less alone. And, you know, you could talk to an older person and a parent, grandparent, a friend, whatever it is, and, you know, for 45 minutes, an hour, and you've given up 45 minutes or an hour, but you've changed their day, you've changed their week, you've changed their month, maybe you changed their whole outlook on their life. You just, you know, sometimes when you're speaking to somebody, uh, an elderly person is the trajectory of their entire day is just shifted and their eyes are just lighter and there's a glow again, assuming this conversation doesn't go south, uh, but when they're able to connect and express, it's, it's, it's near magical and it's a beautiful thing. And if you're able to focus on the pain that the other person is in and what they're going through, then you won't be absorbed in your own and you'll be able to establish that connection rather than try to minimize how they're feeling. So this is mostly when we have a relationship with the individual, it could be a, a relative, a parent, a sibling, and we want to empathize, we want to validate, and we need to have patience. And if not, don't engage because it's just going to get worse. But what we're seeing nowadays, if we step out of the family context is in shul, for example, that there are irritable people, people in bad moods, and we're having the machlokuses over window open, window closed, how loud can I dive in my Shimon Esrei? How loud can I dive in? Who's going to be? Whatever it may be. And there seem to be more irritable people around during the COVID generation, during the COVID era than, than before. How do you deal with somebody who is irritable, cranky, mean? Yeah. How do you handle yeah. such a person? Right. But look, what's interesting, Rebar, is all of the examples you gave revolve around the same theme of control and significance. In other words, uh, this person wants to make their presence known. What they're screaming through their actions is, pay attention to me. I matter. I'm important. Even argue with me. Do something other than ignore me. And, you know, it's, it's too easy for someone to feel, once again, as, as they get older, that they don't have significance. And so they would rather, just the same way a small child would rather, you know, um, be bad than to be ignored and at least get that negative attention. So too, older people, you know, the personalities fundamentally don't change in this world or as, uh, you know, or, or as, as Rev Desla says, in the next either. The fundamental tenets of personality are what they are. Certainly we can, we can mold them and shape them, which is our job here. But if you have a cranky young person that doesn't work on themselves, it's no surprise they're going to be a cranky older person. Also remember too, as they get older, the relationships, you know, given their personality may become more frayed, more strained, even you know, estranged. Um, and all of these things are going to compound and wear on their emotional health. So how you deal with them is the same way when, let's say, let's say you're having a conversation with somebody who is mean and sure, they're belligerent, they're bombastic, they're, you know, they're just not being pleasant. The minute you focused on your own pain, now you're in an argument, right? If you, you say, how dare they treat me like this? You know, what's wrong with them? As soon as you become eye-focused, you're, you're done. But if you're able to just take off your glasses and put on theirs and just imagine just for 30 seconds what their life is like, their challenges, their, 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 their traumas, the trad, whatever they've gone through, you might be looking at the world the very same way that they look at it if you were wearing their glasses. And if you're able to focus in on that person's pain, you're not in pain. And if you're not in pain, then you're not bothered. The only reason you get bothered is because you're in pain, you focus on your own stuff. Step out of your own shoes. Just imagine that other person's pain and they could 
sit there and yell and scream at you and you could authentically have empathy to the nth degree simply by paying attention to their pain and not to yours. And assuming you do that, how do you still deal with the issue when that individual wants something and the T-word doesn't want that issue? Or if the person is doing things that are disruptive in the shul or whatever context it may be. So we still have that conflict. I'm empathizing. I'm feeling for the person and understand that the person is either mentally ill or mentally difficult. And there are issues. There are serious issues. But how do we still deal with the issue at hand? It's not it's not an individual versus individuals, assuming that we have that individual versus a, a, a common communal need. Great. That's a great question. So look, you know, you alluded to it yourself when you said, you know, this person may, you know, have a, a, a mental issue, whatever it is. If we see somebody who's physically handicapped, you know, we wouldn't get upset that they can't get out of the wheelchair and, and, and walk the same way other people would, because it's very obvious. When if somebody has an emotional or mental handicap uh, or, or, or incapacity, it's very easy not to see it. The reason is because this person very often will put on a very strong hard front, a shell in order to protect that soft inside. So, you know, they make it more difficult for us to penetrate that shell. But it, it, much the same as we said in a different uh, conversation you and I had, we talked about Shalom Bias in terms of it's not so much this person getting their way. They just don't want to feel marginalized or minimized, like their time or their ideas aren't valuable. So it does require, you know, some investment, meaning that the rub of the show or, you know, whoever is you know, running the show needs to really give this person their time, their attention, their, uh, you know, to really listen to them so that person feels heard. End of the day is whether the shul does what this person does or doesn't do is always going to be secondary, secondary to this person feeling heard and validated. And the reason is because you could give in to this person. Let's say this person says, I, whatever it is, I think we should uh, have all the windows open and shul all the time. And if, it, and if they say, fine, you know what? You're impossible to work with. Fine. Keep the windows open. The windows will be open, but the relationship won't be improved. And this guy will be none better off for the process at all. He got what he wanted and he couldn't care less. To the contrary, you could sit and you could talk. He could express how he feels. He could bring a PowerPoint presentation. You can listen to it all. End of the day is once he feels heard, once he feels that he's not being dismissed or marginalized, that what he has to contribute matters and you don't do what he wants, he may not be happy that you won't do what you, he wants, but the relationship will not only be intact, it will be improved because he will have felt heard. Very often when someone comes to us, could be our child or spouse or the cranky guy in shul, we think that it was going to be headed for a battle. And if we don't do what they want, then it's going to be a fight. Not so. As long as this person doesn't feel like what they want is being dismissed or being marginalized and their their feelings are being minimized and invalidated. And as long as they feel heard authentically so, whether you do or don't do what they want is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but it's largely secondary. Uh-huh. Now, talk to me on a related issue on improvement of mitos, because this is an opportunity when dealing somebody with dif- a difficult person to try to improve our mitos. And uh, people oftentimes talk about improving mitos and learn more. So I actually asked a number of uh, students once, ask a, a bunch of your rabbanim, how do you improve mitos? And they came back with various answers of learn more, be introspective, this and that. But that doesn't get to the fundamental question of tachlis. How does somebody, practically speaking, 
go about improving meters over time. Right. And so ultimately, being able to, to break any habit or let alone addiction or self-destructive behavior, habit, or meter, characteristic trait, whatever it is, you have to connect with what it is you're doing and why it is you're doing it. In other words, you know, a, a person who wants to lose weight just because it's a nice idea it's not going to be able to sustain that weight loss. But a person who wants to lose weight because the doctor told them that, you know, if he doesn't, he's going to be in big trouble, or this person needs to donate uh, a kidney, and unless they lose 50 pounds, he won't be able to give a kidney, they're going to lose the weight. So if I think the mistake we make it just in generally, and I'm certainly not in a position to tell somebody how what they should or shouldn't do with in, in terms of, of, of Musar, but the mistake I think people continuously make is we don't go deep enough in terms of really drenching ourselves with a full awareness of why it is we want to do what we want to do. And it could be to uproot a negative meter, or it could be just to, you know, to have more willpower or discipline in any area, whatever we want to accomplish. You really have to be clear about the why. There's only so much in the same way as motivating anyone else. You know what? You want to you get your son up to down for chakras. You want someone to do whatever it is. You can explain the what to you blue in the face. And uh, until a person really connects with the why and has that intrinsic innate motivation, it's going to be a, a sporadic, if not uphill battle. So whenever we want to work on something, you really have to own the value of what it is that you're doing. And you'll find you'll have that organic energy to move you forward. Okay, very interesting and, and uh, very practical. Dr. Lieberman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, very important and insightful aids that you give us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Beryl Wine. Rabbi Beryl Wine is the known lecturer, historian, former Rosh Hashiva, Shul Rav, and so much more. Rabbi Wine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Rabbi Wine, we are talking about dealing with difficult people. And as an initial matter, I'd love to hear about some of the challenges. I got to imagine you've had some challenges in your life dealing with difficult people. So if you could just give us a flavor of, of some of the challenges and thereafter, I'd love to ask you about what you learned and some eights that we can uh, learn from your experiences. People are uh, are difficult. Chazal say, All people are difficult. The question is, how do they react to these challenges? So uh, when I was a lawyer, so I always had difficult people because that was the opposing lawyer or the opposing uh, antagonist in the uh, in the dispute. I found it very hard to deal with that because I found uh, that I was seeing people at their worst. It's easy to become cynical. And if you become cynical, you're lost too. I think that's one of the reasons that I left the law, is that even though uh, I had a fairly successful career, I was not happy because I'm always dealing with Always dealing with the negatives. Always bashing heads with somebody. Yeah. Well, you know, even if you've got a practice where you do nothing but draw up papers, it's impossible to go through life without meeting difficult people. A lot of them love them. You meet always bad people. And the question is, how much do you allow it to get to you? So again, I don't know how to put it, but uh, my generation had a much thicker skin than uh, my uh, descendants have. My mother used to say, you know, somebody, I came home and I said, you know, in, in the classroom, somebody said this and this to me. I feel very badly. So she used to say, she said, in Yiddish, you know, that they're So he said it, so what? Right. Like, forget it. So there was an ability to forget it, that it really didn't count. But if you take everything personally, and that's part of, the, I think, the most difficult 
task in the rabbinate is to be able to somehow immunize yourself from taking things personally. The guy says to me, I didn't like your sermon. So I said to him, I didn't like it either, but I had to speak and you didn't. Right? So, <laughs> no, you didn't like it. So what? Oh, that's a question of that self-strength. Uh, self, uh, uh, self uh, I think it's very important also to uh, view yourself as working for a cause and not for people. As a rough. As a rough, but as an accountant, as anything. I'm working for uh, the betterment of society. I'm working for... Uh, I'm working for the Rebbeinu I'm not working for you. That's what Chazal meant. You can't be a slave to another slave. And that's an inner sense of independence. It's not an outer sense. It's not that you're going to tell off your boss. That's suicidal. But you have to feel that somehow he's not it. It's part of it, but he's not it. And uh, again, the people that are uh, strong in their self-identity usually uh, have uh, the ability not to have to deal with difficult people. Somehow you know, they avoid them. They let it brush off themselves. That's right. And it takes two to tango. And somebody insults you, then and you, you give them back, and then you're, you're in it. So as a Rav, as a Rosh Hashiva, what were some of the encounters that you had? That, uh... oh, the Rav, you have it every time. You have a hundred million different issues. Yeah, you know... How come you came to be Menachem Ogil on the fifth day? Why didn't you come on the first day? <laughs> if you stop to answer that, you're an idiot. Uh, sermons, uh, policies, you know, a soft approach, uh, right? a soft approach turns away a lot of problems. Got it. There are people who are pugnacious. There are people who are uh, half to answer, they have to. <laughs> the Gemara says, right, I'm all leaving, vain, I'm moving. People who are insulted and they don't insult back. Show me mcherposom, vain, I'm mishivim. They hear insults, but they don't respond in kind. So that's called Ketzeis Hashemish Bigvaraso. So then the, you're, uh, you're a gibar. You're a hero. That's Kovesh Hazitzo. You've overcome your instincts. Most of the time in life, you rarely regret what you did not say. But uh, there are a great many times that you regret what you did say. And that's true, not only, it's true at home, you know. <laughs> You're in a bad mood. It took you uh, two hours uh, on the with George Washington Bridge. I would come home to Muncie from New York City, washed out. I would sit in my automobile for a half hour before I went in the house. Because I went in the house, and the kids weren't making too much noise. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, the meat got burned, this, that, you know. So it's not that I'm angry at my wife, but I'm just, I can't take it. So you have to have mechanisms to be able to adjust to uh, situations. Now, there are situations that are unadjustable to tragedy, sickness, uh, losses of uh, wealth, that are terrible things. But that is still not as destructive as a person that has no self-worth. So, so when it comes to Eitzas, I, I actually was, as you were speaking, writing a list. So let me, let me make sure I get this right. Number one, don't take it personally. That's for sure. And that's, that, that applies whether, whatever, yeah, whatever it is. As a parent also, especially that's as a parent. As a, as a husband also, as a wife, right? You're the only wife I have, so who else can I be mad at? <laughs> I used to tell her that. <laughs> 
<laughs> he said, that's your role. <laughs> and then we would laugh about it and it was over. Right. So no, number one, don't take it personally. Number two, you're working for a cause. Right. right. You're working for a higher cause. You know, that's absolutely true. And uh, if you see yourself in that light, so then uh, all the uh, all the stumbling blocks are, become less high. Right. And number three, work on your self-esteem. Because if you have the self-esteem, yeah, a lot right. of this will, will right. roll off of you. That's right. And number four... Don't respond. Don't respond. Don't respond. And I love that quote. You you won't regret what you don't say. That's right. Okay. A- anything else to add? That was great. This is really a great list. It's time for another book, Rabbi Wine. I just wrote a book about Rosh Hashanah. Malchus, Zichronus, and Shofros. Small book. It came out? Yeah. Well, uh, you'll leave with a card. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But it's a very interesting, good little handbook that I think people should have for Rosh Hashanah to understand the 30 psukim, why Chazal chose those 30. Those specific ones. Yeah, and what it means to us, and etc. Very good. All right, well, Rabbi Wein, any further rates for, this is a lot already, but any further rates for our listeners? They can't afford it. It's good enough. It's good enough. Great. Well, Rabbi Wein, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Okay, good. Stay well.